0: O Father, we extol your great name and your mighty works. We lift up to you this praise this morning. Though from feeble lips, Lord, yet unglorified, we nevertheless, Lord, from the wellspring of joy at our salvation overflow and praise to you this morning because of the work of Christ your Son on Calvary. God in three persons has accomplished our salvation. We thank you, Father, that your plan was perfectly executed in history, was there before time began, and the voluntary condescension of Christ our Lord coming into flesh to this world, being humiliated for our sake, for the sake of our salvation and your glory. We thank you that this is possible because of your plan, your purpose, your nature, your character. We thank you that the presence of the Holy Spirit has applied this mighty work of redemption to each born again soul in this place today. We thank you that you have done this to the praise of your name such that you will gather for yourself a harvest of those who will worship you in glory, whose voice will overflow like a mighty waterfall for eternity echoing the praises that you so deserve. Thank you for these things as we lift up your name this day. I pray that you would be made great in our heart, in our affections, in our proclamation. As we have sung now, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would fill in the gaps of our understanding by the sufficiency of your recorded scripture, and that you would quicken, Lord, our love and desire to serve you with our whole heart as we open up your infallible word today. Lord, in all of this, we thank You for the redeeming power of our salvation and the continued sanctifying work. May it progress today as a result of Your means. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great privilege and honor it is for us to turn to the Word of God and consider the price paid and the value of what was purchased for us today in our salvation that will be a theme for us in our passage turn with me to Matthew 27 32 through 36 in your scriptures today again Matthew 27 32 through 36 just a few verses will be the subject of our consideration this morning as we consider Jesus Christ crucified I was struggling for a title for today's message, between two, and so I'll give them both to you. The first I thought of was The Rejected Stone. If you have a copy of the notes this morning, that will appear on the top of your page. The Rejected Stone. That title comes from Matthew 21. I find it insightful and just uh, encouraging to the soul and amazing to the mind to look closely at the Gospels and see how what Christ had prophesied By way of parable and analogy before, he is now fulfilling, just months later, perhaps, in time, what he had declared in parable before. And so, Jesus says that the stone that the builders rejected, namely himself, would become the chief cornerstone. That which was thrown away from those who should have recognized its purpose and fitted it in place will actually become the chief cornerstone, the main foundation point, the fixture, the foundation, the anchor, the point of reference for all that will be built upon it. As Christ is going to the cross, though this is a pitiful scene, humanly speaking, though the the chaotic events seem to be out of control from our perspective, please know the Gospel of Matthew would have us know that these events... For ordained, ordained, and now, following the plan of God and His decree, unfolding in time, are establishing the cornerstone of our faith, Christ, killed for our sins, buried for three days, resurrected on the third day, interacting and sharing now with new insights to His disciples the message of the kingdom for that 40-day span, and then ascended. Into glory and receiving from the Ancient of Days his Father a kingdom where every nation, tribe, and tongue from them he will gather his inheritance. And so we are here today as proof of that very activity in Scripture. These are all the ideas connected to this term, the rejected stone, perhaps better stated, the chief cornerstone. But at this time, we see the action of rejection by the hands of those who should have recognized the covenantal people of God, but instead of recognizing, affirming, worshiping, and welcoming the Christ, they kill Him. Another title could perhaps be expensive and beautiful. Expensive and beautiful. If there is anything in this message today that I hope we all take away is those two words to describe the work of Calvary, Christ and His work on the cross. Let us consider How our text today shows us how expensive our salvation is. What was the cost? And secondly, how beautiful this work of God truly is. Expensive and beautiful. With your Bible open to Matthew 27, and out of reverence for the Word of God, would you stand with me if you're able, and let us consider these few verses. Again, Matthew 27, verses 32-36. through We have here the Holy Word of God. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Him there. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. I see a slight typo in my own notes. I would have liked to include one more verse there. Let me read to you verse 37. After they sat down and kept watch over Him there, it says, And over His head they put the charge against Him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. As we consider these words this morning, the suspense and anguish are dramatically building in Matthew's account of these moments in Christ's ministry. It's as if He desires for each of us, the readers, the hearers of the Word, to sense something of the horror that he and his fellows, fellow disciples experienced during this darkest chapter of Christ's ministry in one sense. Namely, his crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There is some irony in this writing. Because as he draws us in through this use of suspense and descriptive language language to the intensity, to the stress, to the anguish, to that which Jesus endured of the hour, as he is drawing us in by describing it in these graphic terms, he has already said in his account that he and his comrades are nowhere to be found in this scene. They had long since scattered. Scattered. You remember, Jesus himself had prophesied the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. Part of the cup of the sufferings that Christ would bear is the abandonment of him in his darkest hour by his own. But now as the shepherd is struck by the hand of the Almighty, we see in the scriptures how expensive our salvation truly is. And we find a beauty in all the threads of redemption that are tied together. The Almighty God the Father hands the cup of sufferings and death to His Son. And Jesus drinks them. Drinks them all. And Matthew as he records these words implores us to lean in closely. To consider each detail of Christ's work fulfilling all righteousness. Christ had declared that as part of His mission at His baptism. It is His It it is His intent, His call, His duty to fulfill all righteousness according to the will of the Father. And fulfilling all righteousness meant at this time to drink the cup of sufferings that He must bear for His own to be freed from the curse of their own sin. In chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus had employed a parable and an analogy to explain these circumstances playing out in history on the grand stage of God's redemptive purposes. Just a reminder and a refresher. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew 21. Because the parable that might have seemed mysterious when he delivered it is now quite clear. Hear another parable, verse 33, he says, There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away to another country. Who is the winepress, vineyard, this area uh, of agricultural wealth and prosperity? What does that represent? The covenant relationship of God the Father to his people, Israel. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants. So listen, God the Father is sending prophets to his people. What did the tenants, that is the Israel, Israel, as represented by their leaders, scribes and Pharisees at this time, what did they do? Verse 35, they took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Listen, this is our passage foretold in Christ's parable in Matthew 21, 37. Finally, he, God the Father, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to them, saying, They will respect my Son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. Let's pause. Who are the other tenants? You and I, brothers and sisters, Gentiles, grafted in. We are here today because of God's sovereign plan wrought in salvation, prophesied in this parable, fulfilled in the gospel record we we have read today. He will lent out, lent, uh, lit, he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Let us do that. Let us give him his fruits and. In their season, Jesus said to them, have you ever read the scriptures? And here's his analogy. The stone that the builders rejected has become a chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. If you want to look at the real-time events that fill in the meaning of this parable, you need look no further than our passage today. What did that parable look like as it was fulfilled before the eyes and ears of all who had eyes and ears to hear and see? As they went out, Matthew twenty-seven thirty-two, they found a man, Simon of Cyrene by name, compelled him to carry his cross, leading Christ along to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offer him wine mixed with gall to drink. He refuses. They bring him to the place of crucifixion. And in one phrase, the author says it all, all the horror is packed into this one phrase, and they crucified him. They divided his garments by casting lots. They sat down, kept watch over him, speaking of the soldiers. And over his head they put the charge, the crime for which he was killed, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so you see, so you see the builders rejecting the stone. So you see the tenants of the vineyard killing the son. And you also see, that as this event takes place in redemptive history it will pave the way for new tenants to populate a new vineyard. And that stone that was rejected to become the most important fixture in all of cosmic history. And so it was expensive yes, but it was beautiful. Finally, the master sends his only begotten son, but like a stone rejected by the builders themselves. He is killed. Unbeknownst to all at the time, this stunning act, in this stunning act, Jesus whom they crucified would become the chief cornerstone. Let me highlight for us this morning, let us note key details that converge at Calvary. Key details that will help us realize the expense, the value that is, and the beauty of what is going on here. Three basic categories. The people, the place, the place. And the prophecies. Key details converge at Calvary, and as, as we consider them in our text, these few short verses today, consider the people who are there, the characters in the narrative. Secondly, let's consider the place where Jesus is led. And thirdly, let's consider the prophecies that are fulfilled in these few short verses. though the theology that is compacted into this moment. Oh, the glory that is contained by way of words and small package, exploding in glorious revelatory truth for those who appreciate what is going on and may the Spirit open our eyes to see it ourselves this day. First of all, consider the people gathered. Of course, chief among them is our Savior. Our Savior, who in a few verses prior had been the victim of a ceremony of mockery. The soldiers of the governor, in verse 27, took Jesus to the governor's headquarters. These are the events that immediately precede our text today. They gather the whole battalion before them, all their, the soldiers in their group. They gather them, and what do they do to Christ? They strip him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. They twist together a crown of thorns, and they put on his head a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! <clears throat> they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put on his own clothes, and they led him away to crucify him. They led him away to crucify him. This week on the website I will post for you an excerpt of further reading. I would encourage all to read it. It is simply a historical and biblical account of some details of crucifixion. To let us understand the agony of what is taking place here. In our culture today, although we're familiar with the term crucifixion, we're not familiar with all of the gruesome details. You and I have never driven along the road and seen cross after cross with men heaving up and down, gasping for breath for days on end. As the flies have now infested, and found places to lay their eggs in crevices of their body, and as birds have come and stolen chunks prematurely before the corpse dies, as the buzzards circle overhead, and as the stench of death, death fills the nostrils of all who pass, and as the ears ring with the anguished cries of those who wish if they could have one thing in life, it would to be dead right now. And it can't happen because their body involuntarily pushes against the nails in their feet, gasping over and over to fill the lungs. Just a partial description. The one to be crucified was stripped naked of all his clothes, and then followed the most awful moment of all. He was laid down upon the implement of torture. His arms were stretched along the crossbeams, and at the center of the open palms, the point of a huge iron nail was placed, which by the blow of a mallet was driven home into the wood, Then through either foot separately or possibly through both as they were placed one over the other. Another huge nail tore its way through the quivering flesh. Whether the sufferer was also bound to the cross we do not know but to prevent the hands and feet from being torn away by the weight of the body which could not rest upon nothing but four great wounds. There was about the center of the cross a wooden projection strong enough to support at least in part a human body which soon became a weight of agony. Then And the accursed tree with its living human burden was slowly heaved up and the end fixed firmly in the hole in the ground. The feet were raised a little above the earth. The victim was in full reach of every hand that might choose to strike. It goes on and on to describe the horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramping, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of an unintended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just point, short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. It's difficult to even read what our Savior endured for us. All of this, the Lamb who suffered for us, having in the power of His Word at any moment, legions, 12 legions of angels that He could summon to intervene on His behalf. He restrained Himself from doing so and humbled himself beyond imagination one who was the eternal glorified son became man but he didn't stoop just low enough to walk these dusty roads and grace this forbidden planet with his presence alone but he stooped so low as to subject himself to the most cruel and shameful death of all a public spectacle of perverse torture as he stood as he hung there bleeding out for your sin and for mine this is the son in the parable he wasn't just killed as a parable might lead you to conclude if you didn't know the details but as you consider the details that converge on calvary the nature of his death included in it the weight of all the suffering your sin And my sin and all of the elect deserved. And this is how it proceeded. They've excavated bones and there's one example that I've seen on the internet of a heel bone. With a nail roughly the size of a railroad spike that is pounded straight through the side. And it is so firmly fixed in that bone that to this day some thousands of years later you can see... Just a glimpse of the agony of crucifixion preserved in the archaeological record. The agony of crucifixion is also preserved in this record today and in the record of history. And it reminds us of the weight that our Savior bore. How expensive, again, was our salvation. Let us consider more people at this scene. Let us consider everyone from the soldiers to Simon the Cyrene. Luke 24, 18 tells us the road to Emmaus. Jesus is asking questions of the travelers. There's a little insight that is offered in passing that lets us know the effect of these events on the culture, on the environment, the the, the hearers, the news of the day. In Luke 24, again, verse 18, when Jesus, disguised to them at this time, asks the meaning of their sorrow, they answer, By saying, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This detail and context reminds us that this death that Christ endured was viewed by virtually all. Everyone from the soldiers who gathered battalions to come in, take the occasion to mock Him, to the onlookers and bystanders who stood indifferent as He went to the cross, may be attracted by morbid curiosity. Everyone to the mockers, the religious leaders, and the self-important of the day who said, oh, if you're the Christ, why don't you come down from the cross? You said you can rebuild a temple. Let's see if you can't exercise your divine authority you claim to have and come down from there. It's amazing how the events conspired to, for this spectacle to be viewed by all. And even more amazing How one is singled out, Simon by name, from Cyrene, and compelled to to bear his cross with Christ. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. There are many mysterious, no doubt, background details that we can only guess at that might explain these events and why this is recorded. But I think there are a few things that we can see. One is that in God's providence, Simon the Cyrene (coughs) became the perfect illustration of what Jesus had called all his followers unto. A phrase occurred to me, what is the maximal, if you will, the maximum demand of true faith? That is, if one has true faith, how powerful is that faith? To what end, to what maximum end would he demonstrate that faith? Oh, well, Christ has proclaimed this in Matthew 16. As he has instructed his disciples, so, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will We'll find it. We've considered our Savior. We've considered the masses gathered. We've considered Simon of Cyrene, illustrating this principle that Jesus proclaimed, that your faith, brother and sister in Christ, is powerful enough, it's a serious enough call, that you are to join Christ on the march to death, bearing your cross, if that is His will. Would you do it? Will you do it? Simon the Cyrene was compelled to do it at this time, but we see him in this instance picturing what we are called to do willingly. Imagine yourself at this scene. Who are you? Where are you in this drama of crucifixion? Where are you and I? Now, often. Preacher uh, Exegetes, good exegetes, those who study the word in context, will point out that reading yourself into the text is is generally an error. But this is usually when we make ourselves the hero of the story. But let me submit to you that you and I do fit in this scene. There is a place where we relate and can uh, share in the experience of what is going on on a number of levels. And let me suggest to you, first of all, that we can be found before we come to Christ, among the mockers. We are not so removed, we are not removed so far by time as to not relate to those who willingly call His blood be on us and our hands, crucify Him, crucify Him. We do so when we live oblivious to God's holy law, in wanton disregard for what He requires, and are content to live a life of rebellion and sin and rejecting the price that was paid. Again, not considering how expensive and how beautiful is the Lord Himself and the price that He paid to purchase us. So in this way, in this frame of mind, in this state of being, in the life course of a believer, we can see ourselves gathered along the thoroughfare crying, if you are Christ, why don't you deliver and save yourself? That's the attitude of those who in their sin universally hate, mock, and condemn the Lord. But if you are a believer in this room, you can also identify with Christ himself. As we look to the scriptures, we see in Galatians 2.20, Paul, who was once a mocker, exclaiming, I have been crucified with Christ. This one-time mocker and persecutor of Christ and his bride exclaims now that his state of spiritual being has been so transformed that he moved from the one who called for his crucifixion and relished the blood of Christ on his hands by way of responsibility as a murder to one who repented of his sin and now sees that his salvation is purchased in Christ's crucifixion. When Paul in his mind's eye saw Christ on Calvary When Paul, in his mind's eye, beheld Christ bearing under that heavy weight of the cross, plodding step after plodding step to Golgotha, he saw himself there. He saw the sin that he was responsible for on top of Christ's shoulders. He saw the pain, the anguish, and the suffering that he deserved, and the judgment dripping from his brow and carved into his flesh by cat of nine tails and pressed into his brow by thorns, pushed deeper and deeper by those who beat his head with reeds and called out in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews. And so we find ourselves in the story. We find ourselves relating as those who were once mockers but then considered the expense and the value to the nth degree of what Christ has done and now see our sin upon His shoulders and celebrate that He was crucified for us. I have a coffee mug in the back there. And there's a quote from Spurgeon. Uh, My wife bought me this coffee mug and I get choked up sometimes when I look at these simple words. It simply says, Spurgeon, a confession of faith, a personal confession of faith. He says, all my theology can be boiled down to three simple words, four simple words, Christ died for me. All my theology can be boiled down to four simple words, Christ died for me. Words from a man who understood the value and the beauty of this event that we are considering today. Second key detail in the text. That's converging at Calvary. Let us consider the place. It is beautiful to see how God has ordained every detail of His redemptive work to draw in so many threads of prior aspects by way of prefiguring, prophecies, messages from the prophets of old, now coming together in this tapestry of fulfillment. First of all, as we go back to our text, we see an interesting name identifying the place where Christ was crucified, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, then we have this parenthesis, which means place of a skull. That's verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. When you think of skull, in our modern context, in our experience, there are associations with it, and some of these are meant to be associated with it in our text today. Namely, death, a horror, destruction, slaughter. Death, curse, slaughter, horrific ending of life so that all that's left is a relic of what once was alive. What are bones? What is a skeleton? What is a skull? It's just a relic of what was once alive. You dig it, you know, as an archeologist brushes away the sand and they reveal a skeleton. They try to ascertain something about the individual, but they can't ask them any questions. They can't interview their neighbors you know. in most cases, especially if they're studying ancient history. Why? Because all we have left is the hollow shell of, once, of what was once a, an alive and vibrant being. And so Golgotha is a place described by these terms. It's a hollow place of slaughter, it's a relic of what was once alive. It is an ominous place where outside the camp, as it were, where distant from where people would rather gather and celebrate the joys of life, there remains this place like a cemetery where only uh, memories remain and the present reality is horrific cursing and death. Deuteronomy 21, through 23 you can mark that for further study later. Even in the law it says that if a man is cursed and hung on a tree, if he endures the punishment for his capital offense, understand that his body must be taken down. It can't just continue to hang there because a hanged man is cursed by God. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. This is what Golgotha reminds us of today. Meanwhile in Galatians 3.13 as we're asking ourselves why? Why this place? Paul answers by saying Christ in His work of redemption redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. On Golgotha's tree On that cross, on this hill that we read of today, Christ was made a curse as the law proclaimed, receiving in His body and flesh the capital punishment that our sin deserved. He was made a curse for us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 15, I believe as well that He became sin for us that we might become free From the judgment our sin deserves, in paraphrase. Some biblical theologians have noted also that even in the geographical situation is a picture of the ancient prophecy, which we reference over and over again because it's a paradigm for Scripture. You go back to Genesis 3.15, and the curse delivered to Satan is that his head would be destroyed, be bruised, by the seed of the woman. Eve would one day have a son in her lineage whose heel would come down hard on on Satan's head. His head would be bruised and Christ's heel as well. But this picture is the mortal head wound is sustained by the enemy in the work, the sacrificial work of the victor, Christ, who grinds Satan and his work under his sovereign heel. And that is what is going on right here. And there are those who have noted that as that stake is driven into Golgotha's hill, which historians surmise is probably itself shaped like a skull, there are these areas where caves and recesses in the mountain actually look like the relic of a dead man, like his skull. Imagine this. A stake is driven into the top of this skull-shaped hill. And so we are reminded perhaps even in this geography that Satan's head, was destroyed by the cross. And while Christ's heel was bruised as he hung there, he would be declared victorious over death and sin. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, as we consider the place, biblical historians have also noted an association throughout the texts of Scripture of particular areas that themselves are revelatory. They share something of God's Word even in their location. One extremely important location that's a thread through Scripture is Mount Moriah. You can read of this on your own time in Genesis 22, verse 14. This is where Abraham takes his own son. A father takes his son up a hill of sacrifice, bearing the wood of his own destruction upon his back, namely Isaac. Isaac is bearing the instrument of his own sacrifice, the wood to be burned, On his back, he's climbing Mount Moriah. The altar is laid out, the wood is prepared, and Isaac is laid across that bundle as the sacrifice. The knife in the hand of Abraham the father is lifted, and what do we hear from heaven? With the stain of the hand of the Almighty, saying, Not now, this son will not be killed. I will supply a substitute sacrifice, and so the ram in the bush is slaughtered. Abraham names that place God will provide because God had provided a substitute sacrifice. That was the name of the place. Later, that same mountain, the angel, you recall because we've covered this recently, the angel of death is slaughtering due to David's sin as a representative of the people, 70-some thousand, and he gets to a certain mountain, Mount Moriah again, and the hand of slaughter is stayed. Where David, acting as both king and priest, intercedes for the people, and there on the threshing floor of a man named Ornan, a sacrifice is made and substitute for the people and his own sin, and the hand of destruction and slaughter is stayed. That location becomes the foundation stone. That becomes ground zero for the temple itself. Which which then, from then on through history to this point, pictures the substitute sacrificial system pointing forward to the final, the once for all sacrifice. And so it was, and so it is in our text today. As it were, Christ now, another son, climbs Mount Moriah, as it were, with the instrument of his own destruction on his back. And the knife of God the Father is lifted, and has it stayed this time? No. It is plunged into His hands, into His feet, into His side. And blood flows. And the once for all sacrifice is made for our sin. God has provided. On the place named God will provide. Which had included in this history of thousands of years, symbols of substitutionary Sacrifice. These are the details that are coming together as we consider Calvary in this moment. Expensive, and as we see in this example, beautiful, amazing. And finally this morning, continuing to note the beauty of salvation provided, let us consider the prophecies that were fulfilled at this time. Again in our text, Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four, They offered him wine to drink. Mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In the drink that is offered Christ, we see a fulfillment... Of the Psalms, particular Psalm 69, let me turn there briefly and explain to you how the Bible had prophesied these moments. While I'm turning there, you'll remember this morning, our worship text was Psalm 22. All throughout Psalm 22, details of the Messiah to come. The conquering and suffering servant are fulfilled on Calvary's hill. There are other Psalms that highlight aspects that are coming together in the beauty of Calvary's work. And Psalm 69 includes some of them as well. In verse 21, David, as we have said, speaking in the Messianic first person, declares, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. When would this come to pass? Matthew 27, 34 answers this question. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Historical accounts of crucifixion tell us that under these conditions, the body is so taxed that every ounce of energy and every bit of nutrition, every drop of moisture is employed to just desperately stay alive. And the body reaches within its own recesses to grab the last resources. And so the famished hunger and the dying of thirst is an ever-present reality to the victim of crucifixion. And this curious mixture of wine and gall was offered to him that he might drink. Commentators have various ideas about what this may mean. But it is... Historically true, it would appear that gall was sometimes used to dull pain. A sort of painkiller, a crude and uh, ancient painkiller might be represented here, which would explain to us perhaps why Christ refused it. When Christ was commissioned to drink the cup of God's wrath, my father, if it be possible, he has said in anguish crying Gethsemane, in his prayer, verse 39 of chapter 26, my father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again he is resolved to take the cup of the suffering that he would endure. And it is interesting to see that when a cup is offered him, as it were, wine mixed with gall, because in it may have dulled the suffering and the pain that he was to endure for our sake, our Lord refused. He refused to be comforted in his time of anguish that he might bear the judgment that we deserved. And thus, even in these moments, in this drink that is offered him, we see prophecy fulfilled and we see Christ drinking to the full the wrath of God for us. Secondly, his dress, what he wore. In Leviticus, also lots are employed. In Leviticus 16, it's interesting again to read through the law. Why do I, I draw these connections out? It's so important, brothers and sisters, for your faith to be built to consider the Bible as a seamless whole. We live in a day and age that is grasping for every excuse to deny the beauty, the power, the comprehensive continuity of Scripture, its clarity and what it proclaims. When we look through Scripture and we see evidences of prophecies written about millennia before they occurred, we will have strength to stand in the day of academic naysayers. We'll have strength to stand when people tell us that the Bible is an incoherent book that just collects various statements of man. No, that's not the case. Let me give you some proof. Leviticus 16 verse 8. This is the day of atonement. You're familiar with this when the two scapegoats, or the two goats, one is a scapegoat, one is a sin offering, are there. In verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other uh, for lot, uh, the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. Lots were like dice, small pebbles, history records. And so sometimes decisions were made based on how they fell when you threw them. Now, the ceremony that was just described was the Day of Atonement, which two symbols, or two goats were employed as symbols of atonement. One would be killed for sin, the other would be sent away with the sins symbolically attached. And the Lot's thrown decided which goat would receive you know, uh, which uh, eventuality, which one would be killed for sin, which one would be sent away. So the Lot's were cast. In our text today, this is not just a day of atonement, this is recorded in Matthew 27, the day of atonement. No actual substantial atonement was ever made in the Old Testament. It was a picture of the day of atonement to come. And on this day lots were cast over the atoning sacrifice. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots they sat down and kept watch over him there it is interesting to see that on this day when the lots were cast christ was both his two sacrifices in one the scapegoat and the sin offering and on this day he bore our sins was crucified for the same and secured once and for all for all of the elect full final propitiatory payment for our sin. Praise the Lord. This is pictured in beautiful detail throughout the scriptures. Again in our worship text this morning. The casting of lots. The dividing of the garments was prophesied in Psalm 22:18 as well. It is amazing. Finally and in closing this morning. Let us consider the final verse of our text. Verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Consider the prophetic declaration of this, the crime for which he was killed. And the irony, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. These words that hung over him, our text today describes as the charge against him. This was the crime for which he was convicted. Is probably also something of a jab, of a sort of satirical barb that Pilate employed against the leaders of Israel, as annoyed as he was with having to carry out this ghastly deed. And these words identified that Christ was crucified for nothing more than the fact that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Though so Pilate himself knew that Christ was no threat to his own rule, that this kingship was something... That didn't concern him, such that he should condemn an innocent man, but compelled to do so by the cries of the crowd and the insane uh, begging and appealing of the leaders of the day, he, he condemned Christ to death. But the irony of these words is the fact that they were absolutely true. But they were more true than. But there was more to Jesus' kingship than just his rule and his reign over the Jewish people. This was not just the Son of Man, this was the Son of David. It was also prophesied that there would be one who would fulfill the covenant terms that God gave to David, that he would have a descendant on his throne forever and ever. The pathway to Christ's throne was through the cross. And this, the king of the Jews, would soon ascend to his rightful throne, receive a kingdom before the ancient of days, as we've, remar- we, as, as we've recalled time and again the prophecy from Daniel 7, where the Son of Man ascends before the ancient of days and receives a kingdom, but not just the kingdom of Israel. He receives all kingdoms of this earth. As we read last week in Revelation 11, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, and He shall reign forever and ever. These words were absolutely true, and then some. They identify the power and the glory and the beauty of these events that are unfolding. In just three days, the tables would turn as Christ raises himself from the dead as Christ is also raised from the dead. And as he continues for 40 days to manifest himself in his resurrected form to his people and would soon be coronated king of kings at his ascension. I hope, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have seen by these details this morning a little more of the value and the beauty of Christ's work on Calvary. These moments where the stone that was rejected, soon to be the chief cornerstone, that are playing out in history, were expensive. Uh, The cost of our redemption, this act of self-sacrifice, was expensive. And it was beautiful. It cost the Son of God His very life. But it beautifully purchased our salvation and fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture and paved the way for our redemption and our union with Him and with all who have gone before and all who will follow until we assemble at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father, thank You for this gift. Thank You for demonstrating to us through the beautiful contours of your infallible Spirit-inspired Word, the beauty and the power, the cost of our redemption. Thank you for sending your only Son to be crucified for us. And thank you that His shed blood has purchased our salvation. Move upon our hearts, Lord, with the reality of this event, that it might move out of our mind and our actions the sin that easily besets, that we might be conformed to the image of the One who laid Himself down for us. Lord, move upon our hearts the power and glory of Your ascendancy to Your throne, that we might boldly, unashamedly, accurately proclaim Your Lordship to all. We thank You, Lord. May we produce fruit for Your kingdom, on account of considering your great work this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.